only source of true delight whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my pleading dying. The scripture reading is found in Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 48. And if you're reading from the Blue Pew Bible, That is found on page 878. Let us hear God's word. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet. He sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation." And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. The word of the Lord. This passage is fascinating because... We, we realize at least in some way how uh, the excitement of the crowd was, was misspent in, the, in that they didn't realize the real nature of what Jesus had come to do. And so you're looking at it from many different standpoints. The, the, the disciples who have a certain picture of what Jesus is going to do, Jesus' own perspective, and then, of course, the Pharisees in Jerusalem. They stand for and, and are one with uh, Jerusalem. Actually, they were quite a ways off when this celebration occurred, so it wasn't as though the whole city was coming out to greet him. The whole city was 
rejoicing. The whole city was not rejoicing over his coming. His relatively small group of disciples were at this point. Doesn't change the significance of this in the eyes of God and the proclamation of it to us as to who Jesus is. But it's a fascinating account because of the historicity of it and the many threads that are being woven together to hit this final climax when, indeed, Jerusalem puts Jesus to death. And yet, in putting Jesus to death, it becomes the vehicle by the power of God for the salvation of the world. That's all bound up right here. Jesus knew what was about to happen, and he knew what he was going to accomplish But nobody else, of course, had any idea, really, of what was about to happen. Now, what's interesting, Luke describes this entry on purpose to be like standardized accounts of, in in Jewish literature, of leaders entering cities. They'd done it with Alexander, Apollonius, Marcus Agrippa, Judas Maccabeus, and others. And this standardized description of the leader coming in wasn't to uh, win the victory or claim a victory in the city uh, to overcome the city, but the entry presupposes a victory that's already been achieved. So it's not in order to become king that one enters in these descriptions, but one enters because he is already king. He enters as king. That's what Luke is doing here. Well, we might not be as familiar, you know, with that literature, but that's what he's setting him forth as. The king already is coming in to the city. And, of course, the backdrop to this is at the very announcement of his birth, as Gabriel comes from the uh, presence of God to announce this to the Virgin Mary, he says, he will be great. This is in chapter 1. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. He was a king from birth. Uh, Yahweh himself will give him the throne. That's, that's not to be questioned. That's, that's a done deal, okay, in terms of what God has planned. And his kingship was exercised from the beginning. Filled with the power of the Spirit, he resists the, uh, the devil himself as he comes at him with full force. He shows himself the master, the king. Uh, when he first taught in Capernaum, they were amazed at his teaching because it was with authority. And then, when he told a demon to leave a man, and it happened right in front of them, uh, they, it says, they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And that's the way it went, again and again. Kingly authority, exercising over winds and, rain and, and, and uh, the sea, uh, over disease, over demons. He was a king of infinitely higher glory than anyone could have imagined. He had, though, a nobility and a dignity and a majesty that went off the charts of the known universe, even though they themselves were, had certain picture of what all of this meant. Uh, they, it says they were uh, joyfully announcing his coming because of the mighty deeds that he had done. Verse 37. 
the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Now this word mighty is the word that you and I are familiar with or you've heard maybe before that in the Greek word there's this word dunamis or dunamis that we get dynamite from. Okay, so it's the word for power. And usually when you see the word power in the New Testament, it's this dunamis. Okay, well, that's this word. Uh, and listen how it's used in, in, in Luke itself. With authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. We saw that. That's chapter 4, verse 36. That's authority and dunamis with power. And later, the power of the Lord was with him to heal the dunamis of the Lord. And then all the crowd sought to touch him. That's chapter 5. Now in chapter 6, verse 19, all the crowd sought to touch him because power, dunamis, came out from him and healed them all. And then he pronounced woes upon the cities because he said, if uh, dunamis, uh, dunamis, that's plural, <laughs> that's the English broken Greek version, um, but if the many works, these dynamites, okay, had been done in, in, in Tyre and Sodom, uh, they would have repented, but you didn't. If they had had such revelation of the dunamis of God, they would have repented. And so they're celebrating all of these mighty works that Jesus <clears throat> had done. And John even tells us about the resurrection of Lazarus that occurred a little while before this. Right there in Bethany that's mentioned in this text, right on the outskirts of, of Jerusalem or a couple of miles from Jerusalem, but it's, it, it became a part of the Jerusalem environs, you see. And it was right there, right close to Jerusalem where he had raised him from the dead. And therefore, it says the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. They were telling everybody about Lazarus. And so people were coming out to meet him because they had heard that he had done that as well. That's in John 12. So many of the people who had seen all these mighty works, including the resurrection of Lazarus, were thinking, surely this Jesus is the promised one that's going to give us deliverance from our enemies. I mean, this guy controls the elements. He controls demons. He controls diseases. This is our man, you know. This is our Messiah. Here's the one. He can expel the Roman army. He can set up shop in Jerusalem and begin to rule the earth on behalf of his people. Well, a while back, remember, when Christ, had, Jesus had begun to tell his disciples about the upcoming uh, death. Remember what Peter did. This was, you know, the closest disciple to him. And Peter rebuked him for saying anything like that. He's kind of like Barney and Andy Griffith, you know. Barney, you can see Barney showing a little tour group his, oh, thank you, uh, showing a little t tour group. I've been hoarse all weekend. And as I said to Sunday school class, I haven't even been at a football game. But, I'm, <clears throat> um, but you can hear Barney. This is where we keep all our hardened criminals and as he's speaking, Otis, the town drunk, who let himself in the jail the night before, reaches out of the cell, gets the keys, and lets himself out. You know, <laughs> and, 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 of course, as Barney does so many times, he's just out of it. He's a fool. He doesn't know what he's talking about, right? And 
Peter is that way. His words to Jesus there in Matthew 16, they have this double negative. Jesus, no way this is ever going to happen to you. Absolutely not. That's the, that's the feel of the passage as he's speaking to Jesus. And you can kind of hear Peter's frustration. Don't you get it, Jesus? Don't you realize what you've got, who you are, where this is headed? You're going to clean house in Jerusalem. You're going to own this place. Die. Don't talk that way. That's not what this is about. He's telling Jesus that's not what this is about. And, of course, you remember Jesus' words. Face Peter, he spoke to him and he said, get behind me, Satan. Yikes. That's not a good thing to hear. You're a stumbling block to me, he says. You're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. It's as though he said, hey, I've heard that voice before, Peter. Yeah, it was with me on a mountain one time. And it said, if I would bow down and worship him, he would give me all the kingdoms of the earth. That would have been really convenient versus what I'm about to face. And I'm hearing the same voice, same voice to turn me away from what God has called me to do. Yeah, he had a lot of temptation about earthly kingdoms. But he was not there for that. He was not there to accomplish that. That's He was not setting up rule in Jerusalem. That's not why I'm here. He's saying, that's not why my father has sent me. You don't see what God is doing. You don't see what God is about to do. You don't see what I'm about to do. It's a different kingship. Now, what's interesting about this uh, verse 28, as it, it says, going up to Jerusalem, this follows a string of statements that goes back to the very... Transfiguration itself, way back in chapter 9, where it says at the Transfiguration that Elijah and Moses are talking to Jesus. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it says, as, as it describes, his face altered, his clothing became dazzling white. Two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. And they spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And the, the Greek word is his exodus. Okay? It's a deliberate recall of the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt into the freedom of God. And so he was about to accomplish an exodus through his death and resurrection. And then he says, in Jerusalem, at Jerusalem. And so later in that chapter in verse 51... When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Set his face to go to Jerusalem. And the word to be taken up is the word for ascension. It's the same word. This is a noun form, the verb form you find in Acts chapter 1 when it talks about his ascension into heaven. And so that's, in, that's the picture here that Luke is giving us. <clears throat> Yeah, he began to talk then about this exodus, this death and resurrection. Yeah, there's a throne, all right. There is a major accomplishment, but it has nothing to do with what you think it does. I'm not setting up shop in Jerusalem. I'm setting up shop at the right hand of God. Through death and resurrection and ascension. That's why I must go to Jerusalem. 
The days drew near for him to be ascended. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. And later in chapter 13, and then chapter 18, he keeps talking about Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He said, a prophet can't be put to death outside of Jerusalem. He knew he was going to die. He knew what his kingship means. And he knew what true rule was going to be. And he was not turned away from the petty ideas that his disciples had about this rule. That's why in Luke chapter 4, in his very first sermon, in his hometown of Lazarus, where he was raised... He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll. He found the place where it was written, Spirit of the Lord is upon me. had to go all the way to chapter 60, 61. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant and sat down. That was the custom. You didn't stand like we do. You sit down to teach. Everybody was watching him. Can you imagine when he says... Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Of course, you know the result of this. They took him to throw him off a cliff. (laughs) Not quite responsive to his message of salvation. You see, this is the king and this is the kingly message setting people free from the misery and curse of sin in all of its manifestations. And that's what he will do with this world. That's what he will do with every particle of this universe. That's what he will do with his people in the final day. Everybody will be completely cleansed of anything that has to do with sin and the curse of sin. And this is a description of our release from uh, Satan's dominance and, and our release from our being dead in sin, as Paul describes it in Ephesians 2. And then the many manifestations that flow from that. That is the kingship of Jesus. And it's interesting as he goes, having gotten to Jerusalem, that he goes to the temple, driving them out, and he says, you've made it a literally a cave of thieves. And the idea is, you know, the thieves steal stuff and they go hide away in this cave with all the stuff that they have. And he said, that's what this Jewish leadership is like. They take from the people of God, they rob them of the glory of God and mercy and love and anything that means anything. And they have everything is focused upon them and what they are and what they have. And This is just like a bunch of guys in a cave looking over the rich stuff that they've stolen from other people. He says, that's what this is. Yeah, he was talking about the the, this buying and selling, but it was even bigger than that. This whole temple is just a den of thieves. And then he took back the temple to teach. And no doubt he was even teaching then what he had said in Luke chapter 4. 
that I'm here. The Lord has anointed me. It said that that's what he said in synagogue after synagogue. That was his message. That now the release, the recovering of sight to the blind, the liberty of, to those who are oppressed. No doubt he announced the good news right there in the temple in Jerusalem. That's why when he wept, the, the prophetic l- lament, he, he says, you didn't know, you didn't realize the day of your visitation, that His coming here is the visitation of Yahweh Himself announcing Yahweh's own mercy expressed through Jesus Christ. What more amazing thing the God that had delivered them out of Egypt, the God who had attended them in the wilderness, the God who had manifested Himself to the patriarchs, that God was present in the person of Christ. And even before he went in, he said, you don't know the day of your visitation. This, and this was the last day. As he told in parable form before and after this, they finally killed, they killed all the messengers sent by the, the tender, the owner of the vineyard. And finally he sent his son thinking they would maybe hear him, but they killed him too. So, in the midst of this celebration, and of course the celebration, it has this double meaning because it, it's kind of like the thing that was put over, the, the placard that was put over Jesus' head in three languages, Behold the King of the Jews. Now, of course, the Pharisees hated that because he's not the King of the Jews. And the Romans did it in mockery. Hey, you want to see the King of the Jews? Look at that. And yet, the writer of the gospel included it. He could have omitted that, right? The the gospel writers could have, uh, but they put it there because they said, even there in the mockery, even there of the, the shame, the mockery of the Romans, the shame of the Jews is the glory of God that is the king. And look what he's doing for his people. Look at this king. And so, the glory that Luke's setting forth is that this is the king that's coming. And in fact, it's, it's kind of odd. You might have caught it in the uh, reading uh, that the word tie and untie occurs five times. And in reading it, you're kind of like, what's about the tying and the untying of the cult? You know, it just seems like, you know, it was Luke just... Fixed on that word, he liked the sound of it in the original language or something. I mean, why did he just keep talking about that? Well, it's a purposeful thing because the in the prophecies concerning the different children of uh, Jacob, there you can read those in the latter part of Genesis. Uh, well, in, in chapter forty-nine occurs the one about Judah, who is. The king comes from Judah, and David comes from Judah, and Jesus comes from Judah. And so it, it talks about his scepter. It talks about his kingship. But listen how it describes it. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. 
But as several point out, there's a contrast because this king is, <clears throat> is lavish. He's enjoying luxury. He washes his garments not with tide, in wine, okay? It's like burning money, you know. It's like just taking a bunch of expensive oil and just pouring it down the drain. He, he washes his clothes in, in wine, in his vesture, in the blood of grapes. Lavish, excessive. And they're pointing out that, yes, kingship is here, but it's a very different kind of kingship because he's on the foal of the donkey. This one that was tied, that's why the tide, tied, tied, to bring back to this moment of his, his foal tied. But this one, it comes in humility and brokenness. This one comes not to wash his garments in wine, but to wash his garments in his own blood. This one comes to shed his blood. This one has such no, nobility and dignity. He doesn't lavish himself with riches. He lavishes his life on others. That's the kind of king this is. But everything about this is to speak. This is a king. The cult, the, the fact that he knew where it was and knew what to do, what would get the cult. Disagreement is exactly the setup, but we need to lean into the fact, not that there was this prearrangement, but Jesus just knew because he's being set forth here as the king. And laying their garments, that was in honor of his kingship. It, it recalls, of course, Zechariah 9, though unlike the other uh, Matthew and Mark and John, they don't quote, he doesn't quote Zechariah 9, but Zechariah 9 is in, uh, definitely in the background. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey." Righteous and having salvation. At the time, you see, that the thought is salvation, political freedom, uh, rising and showing off his power and, and ridding us of our enemies. These people who are hoping for that didn't even see their own sin. Didn't even realize their own need for a different kind of salvation. And yes, he's humble because, as Paul says in Philippians 2, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself. And he became obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so the very nature of this, just it declares the glory. Even as it declares the humility, don't miss this, Luke is declaring the glory of this king, far beyond what anybody could imagine, far beyond. In fact, it makes political kings look pretty pathetic. This is a king who has such resources, he spends himself for others. He doesn't need subjects to bolster him up, to pay him taxes and to, to work for him and do for him. He doesn't need any of that. He lavishes himself and his infinite resources for poor, helpless people. There's never been a king like this. And that's why even this normal statement that's, that's given for, for people coming in to the city, blessed are they, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, it's blessed is the king. And this psalm had originally, it was for royal entry. 
Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. He brings about what? Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And doesn't that recount the very announcement of the angels in Luke chapter 2 when they come to the shepherds and say, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. We're supposed to think about that right here. Say, that's what those angels said. That's what those angels said that night. And now it's being said again by this one who's coming into the city. And of course, we're so stricken by this sight of his weeping. As you come down the Mount of Olives, it's on a mountain, and then uh, Jerusalem's on a mountain. And apparently you come around a bend, and I've never seen it live and in person, but and there's the city, and you're about 100 feet above the highest part of the temple, which... If you're looking this way, it's on the north side, coming from the east. And uh, it reminds me of being on Highway 30. Uh, and probably most of you know that when you get to a certain part in 30, you round the bend and you're going downhill, coming off the plateau, and there's Fort Worth. It ain't Jerusalem, but it's my hometown. <laughs> I just love, I love that moment. And I, I'm sure my wife's sick of, you know, because she's like, oh, he's going to say it. He's going to say it. <laughs> I don't know if she does. She probably does. And I say, I just love this view. I just love seeing the city. You can imagine what it must have been like for pilgrims coming to the city that is the dwelling place of God. And the place where they think that all the, the freedom and the salvation of God is going to burst forth in that place. And it's the place we celebrate in the presence of Yahweh and coming down and seeing the whole of Jerusalem and the temple. That's when they begin to burst forth praise, which was kind of the regular thing. You know, when you round the hill and you see Jerusalem, then you start breaking out praise. And then as they continue to draw near, Jesus burst into tears. And this isn't... This isn't quiet weeping, it's, it's wailing. It's the three-year-old cry, you know. You think, is he really hurt? And you think, oh, he's gathering up steam. You know, it's that. It's like pumping up a shot, you know, an air gun is going to just blow out and scream and cry. And I don't mean to be overly humorous, I'm just trying to get you the point. He cried like a baby. Just wailing. It's a prophet's lament, wailing, wailing over Jerusalem. Knowing that in spite of his death, knowing that this actual event of salvation taking place in their midst, that though there would be, as he even knew then, 3,000 people that responded the first day that Peter proclaimed, and these were Jews, fully wonderful Jewish church to start off with. And it, it swelled up to 5,000. So there were many Jews that believed. Paul himself, of course. All the disciples originally. But that relatively few Jews were going to believe. And Jerusalem as a whole was going to reject him. And, and he knows that Jerusalem is going to be surrounded by the Roman army. And he knows, and he talks about the, the palisades, the the, the siege works that they would build. They were wooden siege works by which they could come and attack. They were burned once by the Jews and then they were replaced with stone walls and eventually 
the walls came down and, and everything was raised to the ground and everybody died. And then that little group that went to Masada and they were seized by, besieged by the Romans and they ended up killing themselves so that the Romans couldn't get to them. And so here's Jesus weeping, weeping over his people. And when you, when you think about suffering in this world, it's easy as, and I recall some things we said Wednesday night in our Bible study. It's easy to think, as Philip Yancey talks about it, that we kind of think God maybe is in some celestial deck chair, oblivious to the shocking suffering of this world. And maybe he's awake, maybe he's not, I don't know, but I'm hurting down here and I don't know if God even cares or sees it. And as John Stott in that book says, when you picture God, don't picture him in a deck chair. You picture him on a cross. He is not oblivious to suffering. He entered into suffering. It doesn't make sense of suffering, but it's the vantage point from which we consider suffering to come up to the cross and from that vantage point of a suffering God, look at suffering. A God who enters into that. The cross smashes this caricature. It smashes a detached God. This, and, and don't dismiss this cry and say, well, that was the human, human part of... There's one he here, okay? One he, one person... Two natures, God and man, yes, but one he, he cried out. And remember, he's the full manifestation of his father. He said, I never make a move apart from my father. I do nothing except what I see my father do. <laughs> so we have a revelation of this glorious God. Now, why God let them say no, I don't know. Why he took that and left it that way and said, you've made your choice. And they turned away from him. As he does with so many. Where others, he will not take no, but he so works in our heart and shines the glory of Christ into our hearts that we give ourselves to him. But you must understand, if, if you love someone, how hurt are you when they are hurt? And you don't care for somebody. You hear about some suffering that occurs on the other side of the world. You probably don't cry, do you? But if it's someone close to you and you love them, you love them so much it's intense and they're hurting, you just can't escape it. Do you think that God could love us infinitely and not be concerned? <laughs> it, how can we estimate this, how this love responds to suffering? Heschel wrote this, The most exalted idea applied to God in the prophets is not infinite wisdom, infinite power, but infinite concern. Infinite concern. And so this Lord Jesus not only weeps over the sin of Jerusalem, but then he dies, he puts himself in the place of punishment for, the, for sinful mankind and now offers to each one of us, having entered into our suffering, having entered into the curse, having stood in the place of sinners, 
having put death to death through his death, and then entering into resurrection, he offers us that new life, a new spiritual life with him, a new fellowship, a new communion with him through the resurrection. But he is this, this, this God who is infinitely involved in what we're in, in our situation, in our sin. Stott, and I, I read this as well this past Wednesday night, so hopefully it'll benefit you again as it does, does me to read it. Stott tells of entering a Buddhist temple several times, standing before the statue of the Buddha. And then I quote him. His legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of this world. And that's, of course, preached, as that is who God is. And that's what you need to be. That's the religion, okay? But each time after a while, I've had to turn away. And in my imagination, I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. And he says this, that is the God for me. That's the only being worthy of the name of God, dear people. The only being worthy of the name of God and true king is a God who would suffer for us. It doesn't solve all the problems of suffering in the world, but it helps. And he wrote in this same chapter, and I've said this dozens of times, he said, if it weren't for the cross, he said, I wouldn't believe in God. He said, I just wouldn't. I couldn't. But the cross. <laughs> and and I've, I've said the same thing. It's all that holds me. It holds me gloriously, strongly. It's, it's the avenue into the whole of the beauty and glory of God. It's the only thing that helps me make sense. And so, <clears throat> Edward Shalito, a man who was shattered by the terrible carnage that he saw in World War I. He wrote these lines in a poem entitled, Jesus of the Scars. This was just one stanza. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. It's two lines. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak, and not a God has wounds, but thou alone. That's the glory of the gospel. Not a God has wounds, but thou alone. This is a God for you to trust. This is a God to give your life to. This is a God to take glory in. This is a God to satisfy the human thirst for beauty. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we would join in with this crowd, however little they may have understood what was happening. And by your grace, Lord, we can enter into the heavenly chorus.
that proclaims you as the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And it is the Lamb who takes the scroll. It is the Lamb who takes this scroll which represents providence, which represents history. History, O Lord, is governed by one whose hands have been crucified. Oh Lord, thank you. We praise you. We, we don't know how to fully honor you, Lord. You are such a God of unlimited resource that you spent yourself lavishly for us. Lord, may this, may this convince us more and more and more to trust you, to love you, to adore you, to stand in the freedom that you have won the freedom of acceptance, the freedom of sins forgiven, being so identified with You that we are seen in You, joined to You forever. And that through You, Lord Jesus, we have the favor of God, we who don't deserve it, but we have it. The very favor that You have won is the favor we stand in. The love that the Father has for Jesus is the love that we have. Oh, Lord, we praise you. May we, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my life. Come with blissful rain Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away?